This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Okay, 21st of November, welcome everybody back. And uh, getting towards the end of 2021. So this is the, probably this is the last Dharma talk for the year. And um, at the end of our retreat, our home retreat, I gave a little talk on what I call the stages of practice. And I, I gave you all a little triangle of practice illustrating the movement from the egocentric self to the establishment of the witness or the observer and the non-self, seeing that we're not the parts which come and go. And then to the apex of the triangle, the realization of our non-self self or our true self, which doesn't come and go. And then the whole lifetime journey of integrating those two aspects of our practice, the realization or awakening aspect and the developmental maturity aspect of it, um, sometimes summarized in the uh, logo, waking up and growing up. So today I'm going to continue this talk on the stages of practice from more from the perspective of traditional Zen Buddhist pathways in my ongoing uh, attempt to demystify Zen Buddhism and uh, make it make these pathways more clearer both to myself and to the Sangha. When I first started my Zen practice, even when when first starting teaching, some of these some of these pathways were a little bit unclear for me, but I've I think I've managed to clarify them over the past few years, to myself at least. So I'm going to start off with uh, the story from K6 of the collection of koans or stories known as the Gateless Barrier. Case number six is called The World Honored One Holds Up a Flower. So there's a very simple story. At a gathering on Vulture Peak, the world, the world honored, honored one, Shakyamuni Buddha, held up a flower and showed it to the assembly. At that moment, everyone in the assembly was silent except for Mahakashyapa, who broke into a smile. The world honored one, the Buddha said, I have the treasury of the true Dharma eye, the wondrous mind of Nirvana, the true form of no form, the subtle and wondrous gate to the Dharma, the special transmission outside of scriptural teachings, not established on words and language. I now entrust it to Mahakashyapa. So that mythological story is kind of like one of the, another one of the foundational stories of Zen Buddhism. It's a foundational story of the uh, transmission of this wondrous eye of the Dharma 
from the historical Buddha to the, the second ancestor, Mahakashyapa. And, and Zen Buddhism traces that lineage all the way through to Bodhidharma, who came from India across to China, and from Bodhidharma through all the Chinese ancestors to Dogen, and then from Dogen across to, to Japan, all the Japanese ancestors leading up to the transmission to the West. So this is the kind of founding myth of Zen is this notion of transmission of the Dharma Rai. And we continue that even today. And that's the sort of pathway of passing on this lamp or light from one generation to the next, because that's what a Sangha is all about. It's passing this on from one generation to the next. Sometimes stages of practice can sometimes refer to, I guess, to the depth of enlightenment. Or sometimes we might refer to it as transitions. Transitions may refer to the movement through the traditional transitions or pathways of Zen Buddhism. Um, leading to a greater and greater depth of commitment and maturity of practice. It's the integration of realization or awakening with the maturity of our practice and the integration of that, which is what this is all about. So everybody starts as a seeker, or we could even say we start off as a customer. We might be curious about Zen or other teachings and we might sit around for quite a few years exploring different teachers and different sanghas. Hopefully we don't sleep around too much in that process. Eventually, we might become a friend or a member of a sangha. That's quite an important stage in practice. Um, where we start to participate in regular sittings and retreats. If we become a member of a Sangha, we also participate in the governance and responsibilities of Sangha life. And of course, it's always perfectly fine to remain a friend if that's what uh, suits you best in your particular pathway. And um, there's no reason why a friend could, couldn't even have a deeper realization than a teacher, but prefers to remain as a friend. So there's no necessary hierarchy here. There may seem to be a hierarchy, but there really there isn't. However, from traditional Zen Buddhist traditions, the next step is to form what's called a primary relationship with a teacher figuring out who your primary teacher is going to be. A primary teacher is the teacher you remain, you know, you maintain your closest relationship with. It's very important to be very clear about who your primary teacher is. And uh, also from personal experience, it's very important that other teachers are very clear about who your primary teacher is. Otherwise, it can get a little bit confusing. In Zen Buddhism, like Tibetan Buddhism, 
the teacher-student relationship is central to practice. It's not necessarily the case in some other schools of Buddhism, um, whether it's the, the, uh, the Buddhism that originates in Burma or Thailand, but there, is still, there are still teachers in that tradition, but the relationship between the teacher and the student is stressed more in, in Zen and in Tibetan Buddhism. How, um, in Zen, however, the teacher is not seen as a guru. In Tibetan Buddhism, the teacher is seen as a guru. Um, in, uh, in, in our Zen practice, the teacher is very much um, an ordinary human being. But it's a very, very important relationship. And if all goes well, when we enter into a, a relationship with a primary teacher, and if, and if our passion remains constant for Zen, we're really entering into a relationship that will endure for the whole lifetime of the teacher and student until either the teacher dies or the student dies. It's not to be taken lightly. That is why the metaphor of a family is often used in Zen. So, for example, Barry Matyad is my father in the Dharma. Joe Quebec would be regarded as my grandmother in the Dharma. Uh, Diane Rosetta would be regarded as my auntie in the Dharma. And uh, Malcolm, who you've all met, would be regarded as my brother in the Dharma. So we speak in terms of these family metaphors to illustrate the, the closeness of the relationships that we form in, in Zen Buddhist practice. Traditionally, like uh, in Zen, the, the student asks the teacher um, so to accept them as a student. So in um, you'll find in, in one of the cases of the Gateless Barry, one of the stories, there's the story about the second ancestor who goes to Bodhidharma, who's sitting in his cave, basically pleading with Bodhidharma to be his teacher. And Bodhidharma just keeps ignoring him all the time. It's snowing outside and he's sitting outside, shivering every night and Bodhidharma is just ignoring him every night. Please, Bodhidharma, will you teach me the way? Will you teach me what Buddha is? And just ignores him, ignores him. Eventually, um, the second ancestor chops off his arm and presents it to Bodhidharma. And so eventually Bodhidharma relents and uh, starts to teach, take on his, uh, the second ancestor as a student. So, of course, we see that the cutting off of the arm is a symbolic act. We get some of these violent metaphors in Zen. Basically, it's a, the notion of death really is often used as a metaphor for cutting through the ego, for liberation from the ego and, uh, and uh, waking up is often coming to life again. But, um, but it's kind of like, you know, uh, what I'll be willing to give up in this practice, because basically, how are we willing to give up our attachment to ego? It's a long journey, but that's what the basically it's all about. It's, it's, it's actually giving up our self-centered ways of being. That's what we're being asked to give up. And that's what this whole practice, 
and this whole journey is all about. If you get on the elevator, it's eventually going to take you to letting go and giving up of your ego, not in the sense that you don't continue to, you know, function well in life, but um, your life gradually changes and becomes less self-centered, less focused on self. So be careful. This 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 practice will take you in that direction. If that's and if that's the direction you want to go in, that's really good. So of course these days it's a lot more informal than that. And uh, once you feel you have found a teacher that you can connect with, that you feel an affinity to, towards, then it, you know there's still some kind of process of establishing the relationship. There's some sense in which the the student approaches the teacher and basically inquires, um, "Will you be my? Can I be your student?" And uh, the teacher may say yes, or they may say, "Well, let's see how it goes. Um, let's 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 try it out for a few months or a year or so and see how it goes." And um, and then if we're both happy with it, we can formalize it. So this notion of formalizing the relationship between the student and the teacher differs from one Zen, one Zen center to another, from one teacher to another. Sometimes it's a very informal understanding, which was my experience. Sometimes it's a lot more formal. And sometimes it can be sort of celebrated in a simple private ritual between the teacher and the student. This private ceremony to celebrate this stage of practice is known as Shokan. This is something that I intend to introduce to my students next year before the Jukai ceremony. Because I think it's helpful to clarify these boundaries as to what stage we're up to, what's the, what's the meaning, or what does it mean to be in a teacher-student relationship. In the Zen tradition, it's like in other Buddhist traditions, it's also fine to relate to and have conversations with other teachers. But it's very important to be clear about who your primary teacher is. And of course, as in any kind of relationship, that's a depth relationship, that's a long term relationship, whether it's intimate relationships, friendships, family relationships, or psychotherapy relationships. Relationships have a depth to them and a complexity to them. And each relationship between a student and a teacher is unique, as each relationship always is unique, because the two people that come together are unique. So the relationship's always unique. And we've, we've spoken a little bit about the notion of transference in psychotherapy, the notion of how we sometimes um, we receive something from a relationship. Hopefully, with a relationship with a good psychotherapist or an, and a good teacher, it's a positive kind of transference. Sometimes there can be complications, which we can hopefully work through. But most of the time, we've talked about the kind of transferences that um, that are talked about in like in in, in self psychology. The sense of one transference being the sense of, of mirroring, of being, of the of the of the student feeling known and seen and recognised and valued. Um, 
the transference of idealization of a, a merging a merger with someone who he experiences calming strong and wise who offers themselves as a guide or a mentor to us and the the transference of twinship a kind of sense of a likeness or sameness that is shared a recognition of ourselves in the other and hopefully for the other to recognize themselves in us these are some of the some of the kind of dynamics if it's all going well that can flow into the relationship and you know, over time, you might that that kind of idealization is gradually is gradually uh, taken away to some extent. The same as with a parent, you know, like when we we idealize a father or a mother when we were a child, and as we grow older, we see them more as a person. It's very similar in a, in a Zen teacher student relationship. It's um, eventually we see that uh, you know, what we're really sharing is the sameness and inequality. But it's the teacher's faith and in accessing self or Buddha nature, which can also be very helpful for a student. And sometimes a student will go through different phases of doubt, self-doubt, um, skepticism. And it's the, uh, the recognition of the teacher's ability to access Buddha's, Buddha nature or the self, which is very helpful to the student to also access the same self, the same Buddha nature. So after formalizing the teacher-student relationship in traditional Zen Buddhist practice, the next transition is to ask the teacher to give you the precepts. And uh, again, this is an optional, it's, a, it's not a requirement to, 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 to take the precepts. Um, but for those students who elect to, to take the precepts, so the student then studies with the, the teacher. And that culminates in the Jukai ceremony that we're the first one that we'll be having next year in May. You might call the Jukai ceremony a, a kind of lay ordination. Um, after experimenting with the group next year, I've decided to really do the precepts work as in of a, a private one-on-one -on -one process. And um, so there's a relationship with the teacher-student unfolds over time and the study of the precepts might be, you know, one to two years, depending upon the student. And uh, this gives an opportunity for the teacher and the student to get to know themselves a little bit more intimately. We, we really go into working with the precepts and how they arise in our everyday lives. And so it's a very personalizing process of that. Meeting regularly in what's called the private interviews or traditionally docusan, where we meet every couple of weeks if we can, not for, not for just for 15 minutes to, to keep in touch with each other. Sometimes the conversation might go for longer. And, uh, and in all, all this process, the teacher remains a student. The student's learning from the teacher, but the teacher's also a student, in a sense, of the student as well. There's a lot of mutual, reciprocal learning going on all the time. So the Jukai ceremony is a formal initiation onto the path of Zen Buddhism. 
and the student receives a rakasu, one of these things. And in most Zen centers, the student is given a Dharma name. And uh, in, in our ceremony next May, the students can opt to receive a Buddhist Dharma name or they can opt to receive their own name back again. The student also gives a, a Dharma talk on one of the uh, precepts uh, during that particular retreat. Again, this is just seen as a deepening of practice and commitment. Um, again, it's optional. Another step in traditional Zen Buddhism is the, uh, in terms of deepening commitment, is taking ordination as a priest monk. Now, the name, the uh, ordination is the same for priests and monks in, 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 uh, in, the, in the Japanese Zen Buddhist tradition. So one can be a priest and, of course, remain married and have a family. One doesn't have to become a celibate monk, but some uh, practitioners choose to become celibate monks for, or celibate priests for a period of time. So again, this is optional. And uh, in order to ordain as a priest monk, uh, we need someone in the Sangha that's ordained as a priest monk. My teacher, Barry Majid, decided not to go down that pathway. Um, so Barry's not an ordained priest. Um, but I, I decided to open that up as a pathway for our Zen. So sometime next year, Diane Rosetta will ordain me as a priest with, um, with Barry's blessing. So finally, we come to what's called in Zen transmission. Um, transmission from teacher to student. When we first start off in practice, it's often the case that we feel our teacher has something that we don't have, or the teachers or gurus we, we meet on the internet or we meet in different contexts have something special that we don't have. And the whole practice is about really doing away with that notion, realizing that uh, it's nothing the teacher actually gives to the student. It's more a case of the student recognizes the same, um, you know, Buddha mind that the, that the teacher does. It's a shared recognition. Um, that's summarized in the metaphor of the treasury of the true Dharma eye. The treasure that we're always, we always have, um, it's never been apart from us, but we haven't recognized it. So the whole path is about realizing and recognizing and then actualizing the treasure that we all have. Buddha nature, the true Dharma eye, that's what's transmitted. And the teacher is acknowledging of the student's realization of that Dharma eye. There is usually a kind of a preliminary approval um, known as where the student becomes an apprentice teacher. So for a number of years, I wore a green rakasu. That was my, my teacher apprenticeship with Barry. And uh, that goes on for a number of years. And then finally, there is full transmission, which occurred for me in 2019 where the, the, the new teacher becomes independent in the 
the lineage that he or she belongs to. And the lineage, of course, goes all the way back to Shakyamuni himself. So when you receive full transmission, like written on the back of your Rakasu, Barry just basically wrote, the treasury of the true Dharma I entrusted to Andrew Tutel. So this notion of entrustment is another name for transmission. Your the, the student is entrusted by the teacher to maintain and carry on the, the teaching and the tradition. It's also, we can actually talk about three stages of transmission or three transmissions. So the first transmission is when the student themselves actually recognizes the true nature, recognizes the Buddha mind, which is the same for everybody. It's the same mind that was recognized. The flower. So the flower is no longer obscured by these, the self-centered dream or all the different kinds of vexations or obscurations we get caught up in, which obscure Buddha nature from us. The teacher helps the student to verify and deepen that realization. The second transmission is when the teacher acknowledges the maturity of the student's practice. That there has been a significant shift from identification with the egocentric self to standing in the spaciousness of no self. The teacher starts to see the absence in the student of being caught in the egocentric self. The best way to see that is when the self is threatened in some way. That's when the parts get activated. That's when we, that's when the, the, the self comes out selfing in its various parts, the egocentric self. But over time, you will notice, and hopefully you've noticed it in yourselves, there's a gradual erosion of our attachment to the egocentric self. And we start to have a subtle shift in our identity, which grows deeper and deeper over time. This second transmission is acknowledged by being invited into the teaching role. If that's appropriate, if the student feels a calling in that direction, not every student will feel a calling to become a teacher. Some students may feel a calling to become a priest. So they might go down the priest pathway. Um, some students may wish to express their realization in their life simply by continuing to enjoy their family life, their work life, their creative life and Sangha life. So not everybody feels called to be a teacher. And again, there's no necessary hierarchy there. You have very realized students who don't necessarily be go on the path of becoming a teacher. There are many thousands of them out there going about their daily lives with no pretensions. The third and final transmission is the verification by Sangha. So the acknowledgement by Sangha of the teacher's realization and maturity Again, marking the transition from a self-centered practice to a communal centered practice. This is the final transition to independent teaching where the teacher creates their own Sangha. And the, 
the teacher is basically given their authority to teach by the Sangha. And that was symbolized in my transmission ceremony by my, my son coming over to New York and reading out a letter from my Sangha based in Australia to the gathering in New York. Finally, just want to finish by saying everyone has a different style of teaching. So all teachers will teach differently depending upon who they are, who the personality. Your personality doesn't necessarily go away. It just gets refined uh, through the work we do on the on the egocentric self and, and the integration with the Buddha mind, with the self, the true self. But we all have our different styles of teaching. And uh, there is a commonality with teachers in the ordinary mind Zen school to which we belong to. One of those familiar familiarities or commonalities is that all the teachers in the ordinary mind school will pay attention to the importance of integrating the psychological aspects of practice with the spiritual aspects of practice. But each ordinary mind teacher will be different in their style of practice. And so some of the ways you can think of a little continuum from one end to this other end. So some teachers might be if this like in this end it's like the, the someone's like a really charismatic guru and on the other end they're quite ordinary and some teachers might fall in the middle some teachers might be more on this end and, and um, I've, I've, I've received feedback you know Andrew you're right here on the ordinary end of the of the continuum and that's that's good because that's part of ordinary mind practice although but you can never stop however students might project something on one onto you as a teacher as well. So some, some students may project some sense of um, authority or guruship onto me, but, but I'm hope, I hope most of you perceive me more on this other end of the continuum. Um, the other, the other, other kinds of continuum could be between, might, might be, some teachers might be more authoritarian and others a lot more democratic in how they go about doing things. And I try to be more democratic in my approach. Um, you might have a difference between formality and informality. So I'm, I'm trying, I'm usually very informal, but I'm trying to introduce just a little bit more formality, but not too much. And um, you could have a teacher who's quite conservative politically, and you could have a teacher who's quite radical politically. So, and, and I think you kind of, uh, you have a bit of an idea of my politics, it's left leaning and green leaning, and has been for most of my life. Um, so all teachers will vary in different ways. So I'll end my talk there. I was just trying to sort of demystify and make it clearer as to these kinds of pathways through, through Zen Buddhism. So as usual, we now um, open up for, uh, for questions um, or, or for comments. Um, so when you want to ask a question or share something, uh, just demute de yourself and go for it. Or unmute yourself, I should say. <laughs> is, that all, is that all clear? Is anything confusing about what I was talking about or is it pretty clear? I'm trying to keep things as simple as I can.
So if there's anything confusing, ask, ask me a question and I'll try and clear it up. Okay, so we're all we're all pretty clear. That's good. I've got one question, Andrew. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, I find uh, the point you make about um, I get the sense that it's probably more advantageous for a, a student of the practice to try and choose a principal teacher, um, whereas uh, just through conditions really, um, say with my journey, I've sort of hovered between maybe a couple of teachers because they both offer me um, some, you know, they both offer unique experiences. Um, so I guess, you know, just from your perspective, again, uh, how it, do you think it is really essential and important for me, for, for say for me to make that choice, to make that decisive choice at this stage? I think you must follow your own intuition and, um, you know, your own wisdom in that regard, Marco, as, you know, we're all unique individuals. What's right for me might not be right for you. Um, this is what we all have to figure out for ourselves. So some of us will be drawn. I mean, I mean, I didn't really commit to a relationship with a teacher till like 2003 when I started working with Barry. Before that, I'd done a few retreats and so on and yeah. Zen sessions and talked to it, but I hadn't. So, I mean, and for some people, um, and it's the same with other traditions as well, um, whether or not one makes a commitment to studying with a primary teacher for a while. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, we, we all have different, uh, like you said, um, histories, conditions, which will influence the direction we move in. There's all I want to say or is that um, um, like psychotherapy with like with a Zen teacher, at least, you know, there's been some considerable training that's gone into it as Zen teachers, not just sort of like putting out the, the sign and saying, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. Uh, so you, it's kind of like there's a little bit of, but like with psychotherapy, I mean, even though someone's been extensively trained, it might not be a good fit for you neither with that particular therapist or teacher. Um, and so, and again, though, I want to emphasize there's no hierarchy here. Um, you know, there are nice, there are some nice stories in the Zen tradition about lay practitioners. One that there's, there's layman Pang, there's Vimalakirti, who were 
seen as being more realized than all the kind of teachers. So um, one doesn't necessarily have to go down that sort of pathway of, of working with a teacher. So yeah, it's up to the individual. <laughs> Sorry, I can't really, yeah, you have to work that one out for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I understand that for sure. Um, just again, it was just a, uh, to get you to maybe just um, expand on that a little bit, just to give me an idea, because um, you know there are definitely points in your journey where you feel that you you do maybe have to make a more committed choice to towards. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, just these steps in your journey where you you think, oh, um, maybe it is important for me to focus more fully on one path rather than dabbling in in various things that are on offer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, thank you very much. So any other questions, uh, David? Am I demuted? You are de <laughs> You're demoted. <laughs> yes. Hopefully I'm not a mutant. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess a bit similar to, um, to Marco, I, not sure how much of a specific question there is in there, but I'm just wondering what caught my attention was like what you said at the, diff, uh, at the beginning, towards the beginning about the the nature of being a friend of Sangha. And I'm, I assume that means like a, then having some kind of connection with a teacher versus being a student or not necessarily versus, but where there's a distinction. So I'm just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit more or perhaps just, just, uh, Put it even in a, in a yeah thanks david i appreciate that yeah because I, I was using those words specifically to to um sort of designate those boundaries and again i preface there's no hierarchy intended in any of this it's just the boundary issues so i'm using the word friend um friend of sangha so uh someone who comes along to meetings someone who attends retreats etc etc um, but who doesn't necessarily become a member of the sangha in the sense of paying a membership fee and participating in the governance of the sangha for example so when you become a member you have a vote when you become a member you can you know become on the committee you, you become more active in the democratic um, uh, direction of the organization including the um, yeah, all aspects of the governance of the organization. Uh, not everybody wants to do that or make that kind of commitment. I understand that and that's fine. Uh, we've all had different experiences of being burnt by political parties, by other kinds of organizations. And I understand people's reluctance to join as a member. Um, and it's the same with teachers, unfortunately, as well. There's, um, there's a, you know, there's, there's, there are very sad stories of a teacher-student relationship not working out very well neither. 
But anyway, so I'm using the word friend to distinguish it from member in the sense that the member pays the fee and participates in the governance of the organization. Then you might have a member who doesn't particularly want to be a student of a teacher, and that's perfectly fine as well. Um, uh, so one could be a member of the, uh, the Sangha, participate in Sangha activities, but ne not necessarily want to formalize a relationship as a, with a primary teacher. They, they participate in a relationship with the teacher, but not, a, not, not formally as a student. And sometimes we might have members of the Sangha, like for, for example, Michael, who's, um, who recognizes, who, who has a, um, an understanding, I think, with Barry, that Barry is his teacher and I'm not his teacher. So he has a student-teacher relationship with Barry. Someone else could have a teacher-student relationship with um, another ordinary mind Zen teacher, or they could have a student-teacher relationship with another Zen teacher from a different Sangha maybe, and still sort of participate as a friend in our Sangha. Um, so I'm just, I'm using those friend, uh, uh, member and, and student uh, as, as, as very tightly defined words in terms of those different boundaries. Thanks. Okay. Um, any other points need clarifying for anybody else? Um, if not, any 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 kind of response or feedback to the what I just presented in general? Are you surprised by anything? Uh, shocked by anything? Or did it add to your understanding of anything? Or Yeah, Andrew, it definitely uh, added to my understanding of, um, uh, you, you know, because you, you're kind of uh, creating a, a little bit of an explanation of the ordinary Zen, um, how it's organised, some of the, for want of a better word, hierarchies that exist within it and, and the relationships between students and teachers especially. So... Um, you know, I just found, I definitely found it informative and I, I did probably find it a little bit challenging because uh, in the sense of you realise that, that there are points where you do have to make some probably more conscious choices which, which involve a form of commitment, you know. That, um, so, yeah, I, I just... Um, so that's, yeah. that's what came out of it for me. Yeah, I mean, for me, Marco, sometimes it has a familiar, like, you know, when, we were, when, when I was younger and probably when a few other people here were younger, um, say when I first went to university as a young man back in the late 70s, um, you know, there were lots of conversations to be had around, you know, do I join a political party or do I remain outside of the party and uh, operate more as a... Uh, um, you know, non-aligned or more anarchistically or, uh, or can we have organisations that are not hierarchical? 
Uh, can we do consensual decision making? All those kinds of debates that we had in the 60s and 70s around how you organize politically mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I found your talk really, uh, really helpful, Andrew, and and very um, clarifying. And uh, and I, what I really appreciate about, I suppose, your style of um, of uh, you know doing this and running this sangha is that there is um, sort of room for everybody, and that it's sort of clear, you know, on what level people can participate and can um, join. And that's yeah, that's I really appreciate that. Um, and I think it's become clearer um, in time. Um, how that's working and that's great so yeah thank you yeah and thank you Angie for you know the way in which you participate which helps me to learn that and which helps us all to participate in creating Oz Zen which will be a unique you know Zen community with some commonalities with other Zen communities but very much I share that feeling of collaboration in, uh, in 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 building this and designing this and uh, and sharing it yeah so thank you for also like all the different perspectives you bring and the different perspectives everybody brings to the mix here and we do our best to uh, bring that mix together and try and create but we have to try and create some container for it of some kind I would just like to say that um, I found the talk very helpful and interesting I've come from a history of Vipassana, so I've been um, working with um, the Vipassana Sangha locally for over 20 years, and I've come to the Zen Sangha recently, and I get a lot of benefit from the Zen Sangha, and I find your transparency and your democracy very, um, it's very encouraging because it's there's a humbleness there which is really what the letting go of self and ego is all about and i feel very drawn from the heart to that energy that you're creating with your um the containers the boundaries are so important but still the transparency and the democracy shines through and, and creates a, a feeling of humility and um equality and I feel that's really important to me. And, and that's the genuine feeling I get from what I try to create with my practice. Mm. Well, thank you, Louise. And um, yeah, I love the heart and the integration of the head and the heart. I mean, often the wisdom is quite, can be quite impersonal. And I see the heart bringing the heart into it. It's really important. And in some ways, you know, the, the, we can, the heart's the sangha, you know, the beating of the, it's the sangha, it's the relationships we have with each other where that gets expressed both within the, the sangha but also within the, our relate, personal relationships and the larger community which we are living within. Yeah. Hi, Tom. Nice. For, good to see you. Okay, um, well, we might, um, there's time for one more question, otherwise we'll wind it up. Um, We'll we'll finish with the practice principles in a minute. Um, Any any last question at all? Um, Just thank you.
Yep. Andrew, yeah, thank you for the talk. Um, again, I, I found it very clarifying too, and um, and clarifying of my position with Ozen and and you as a teacher. So it's it's good in that respect. I you know I, I come to this group because um because I have so much in common with it, and that keeps that I feel with the Sangha and with what you're teaching. So, you know, that's that's a, a, a becoming a perpetual thing for me. So, yeah, it's good to have the structure that you've identified to see where I where I sit in it as a friend, you know, and, and to feel comfortable in that way and to be part of this great community that I, I really appreciate. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Pingala. Welcome all friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>